you should the I, I what I'm we're, more excited we're recording. about Oh, hey, what's up? No, I, I wanted you to I was hoping you'd finish your thought. Yeah, no, it's 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 fucking it's a, you know, it's talking shop and we don't really want people to see the whirring gears behind the well-oiled machine that is this podcast. Uh you're of course listening to Spine Crackers. This is one of your hosts, Matthew. And uh Gabe here as well. And I am Paul. And we're here to fucking crack your spine. Yes. Like in half. In half. Bane Batman style. <laughs> uh, we're workshopping that too. <laughs> I was trying to think of a bad, like David Foster Wallace joke. How so? Just with Bane. Like something to that, just saying something about David Foster Wallace and Bane's voice, and I couldn't get there. Oh, wow. Just like, I didn't nothing, know. Like, it was so broke already in your head. <laughs> it's not even a joke. I just think it would be funny to say even just the name. Just like like um <laughs> that was like almost Yoda right there. Well, hold on. I you were born uh I was born in a footnote. Yeah, yes. You merely adopted them. I can't even commit. Yeah. No, that's, that's where that's like where I was. That's where my I'm, mind was at. I am beat red just even trying to do that. That's where right. my we can all see. Yeah, that's where my mind was. Okay. Anyway, welcome everybody. Uh, Settle in. Fun, fun uh, note. Little, little bit of a trivia here for the 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 spine heads out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is our this is. <laughs> This is our 10th episode that we're recording, so uh, and that you're listening wow. to. Yeah. So cheers, we're cheers we're to uh cheers to 10 more. Cheers to 10 more, baby. <laughs> cheers to 10 long more of them. It's fun to get into the double digits. You might as well celebrate any milestone you can con- conceive of. I'm doing this again next week when we do eleven. Well, well now <laughs> we're talking about symmetrical numbers and stuff. Also cool as shit. And 22 and 33. Of course, yeah. Palindrome, palindromic numbers. Oh, boy. 141, 161. Abel was I, ere I saw Elba, you know? Idris Elba? I wonder if, like, uh... (laughs) (laughs) I bet you if there's any math podcasts out there, they'd probably celebrate on all the prime numbers. If there are any math podcasts out there listening, hit us up. We want you on the show. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to hear any of the shit you know about or have to say, but it's cool if you have, <laughs> we have a guest. I'll just shout out two different page numbers. And you have to tell me like what they're what they would be times each other. <laughs> <laughs> really a little fun game for the math for the math guests. uh well if we were to if we were to to, uh work with numbers they would be imaginary numbers because we live in the realm of the imagination and Mm. uh that's kind of what the book uh we're discussing today (laughs) particularly we live in the realm of the imagination this week yeah in this book and we're talking and let's talk lathe gentlemen we're talking uh, the, lathe. the lathe of heaven, Ursula K. Le Guin's 1971 sci-fi uh, novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first thought is, what the fuck is a lathe? Wood, I, think I had to look it up many times. The, yeah, it's a woodworking tool. 
I don't think it's, it has to be exclusively woodworking, but yeah, it's like a rotating, any kind of rotating um, like shop tool that's meant to grind down or like make symmetrical, you know, it's basically a really, really fast moving fucking spit roast. It seems like. Okay. Right. And yeah. Okay. Like a beveler. Is that something else that's kind of like that? Paul, you're, you, you might actually, this is like your, Bailiwick. Yeah, sa sadly, this is kind of my realm, but also sadly, I don't know what it is really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think it's something like uh, like a sand, like something that kind of sands down and forms a piece of wood, or it doesn't have to be wood. The most relatable uh, way that I could think of it is, and I don't even know if this is technically true. Any, if there's any woodworking podcasts out there, you guys give us a uh, a call. We'll bring you in as a consultant the next time we have a book with a, uh, a an obscure woodworking instrument in the title. Yeah. Um, was and I think this is a sort sort of an analogy, but we have a kitchen thing that you put like a fucking cucumber in it or a zucchini, and you just basically stab it on there, and then you t turn it. And it like shaves off the edge to make fucking like zoodles and stuff. Nice. I think it's, I think that's sort of is what it, a lathe does. Is it that? Yeah. I remember. I think it, it, oh, it's for like, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just had a droll story I was going to tell about my, my aunt winning uh, a decisive victory over me in Scrabble with the word Zax, uh, which was a medieval roofing tool. And I was so, I was like, you fucking bitch you don't know what that is and she's just like well we put 50 dollars down and i had to pay her what how old were you Ooh. you're like six <laughs> six years old <laughs> it was all there i don't even know where i'd get 50 bucks at six no i was like uh i was like 18 another another uh that this is actually now we're down a rabbit hole if there's any scrabble podcasts out there but um <laughs> the, another good obscure scrabble word that is a woodworking tool um is and the reason I know this is because it has a Z in it, and that's a, a good thing to know in Scrabble. It's oh, yeah. an ads, A D Z or A D Z E, and it's sort of like a, a cross between like an axe and like a whatever the whittling tool is that helps you. Wow. Uh, speaking of ads, if anyone wants to sponsor us out there, like Ridge Wallet, <laughs> <laughs> dude, I I love what's happening, and we love what's happening. That was nice. That was um, great. All right, so so we're talking Lathe of Heaven. Uh, this was my pick this week, and um, I I picked it for a couple reasons, sort of both personal and professional, as it happens. Um, my the personal reason is that I enjoy Ursula Le Guin's writing very much, <laughs> um, both sort of just from a, a artistic perspective, but also because she was an anarchist and I am an anarchist and therefore I political political view reveal uh clickbait title um, uh -oh. and uh so she was always someone who I read sort of who bridged the sort of fiction political theory gap in a way that I enjoyed um and the, the other reason is that some some of my colleagues and I were working on uh before covid canceled all academic conferences we were putting together a panel on Le Guin and we were each going to sort of cover one kind of 
aspect of her work. Someone was going to talk about her work in sort of like feminist theory. And I was going to talk about the anarchist stuff and someone else was going to talk about something else. And so I had not read this book uh, and I wanted to just get it under my belt before going back to working on that, which will hopefully eventually happen at some point. Um, what did you, what did, had you read before then? Well, so the, the main, I, uh, I've read, well, first of all, I read a bunch of her, she's most famous for, uh, of course, the Earthsea um, novels, which are a series of fantasy novels set in the fictional world of Earthsea. Um, but the, the main sort of political work that she's known for is a book called The Dispossessed. And that book sort of explicitly deals with a future sort of uh, hypothetical anarchist society and it's it has these sort of like anti-utopian but pro-anarchist um ideas in it and it's it's just it's really subtle and it's really interesting and it's really well done and so um that was that's sort of what got me into her and then i've read a bunch of her short stories and stuff over the years uh but this one i had just not gotten around to yet i mean it's definitely like clear the, all that stuff i feel like in this i've not read a single uh Le Guin story i've known about them forever just yet another thing that's just been like i don't know for whatever reason on the back burner for like a fucking decade um and i'm not sure why uh but yeah this was actually the one i i had heard of the earthsea books but this was i was excited because this was the one that i i don't know i most i actually most wanted to have most wanted to read for the longest time paul had you uh read any Le Guin before or anything I nope know. i had heard of what i was just gonna say earthsea is basically just water hobbit so i thought it was <laughs> yeah. like what is like water world or something like is the earth in uh, the sea <laughs> it's, yeah it's it's more like water nice, nice, nice. fuck you matt middle it more more like middle earth sea God. I, I just said i just said water middle earth like water world yeah but you didn't you didn't get all the way there yeah. my jokes are good and then you guys just take them and they're a little bit funnier i'm like uh, not smarter than me dude you're just you're not <laughs> you're not you're not smarter than me dude there's a character in brooklyn 99 called the vulture who just swoops in at the last second and takes over people's cases and gets the the, the right answer and that's me with paul's jokes that's true yeah i just say them too quietly under my breath and gabe's like that was a good one i'm gonna jump on that Paul loosens the rift uh, jar and then Gabe opens it up and gobbles all the shit yeah. inside of it. But no, I, I have, I did uh, hear about Earthsea and I want to read it. Um, but when I first looked at the cover, I was like Le Guin, like a, like a penguin. And then I see a turtle on the cover. I'm like, what the hell is up with that? So right off the bat, pretty confusing. Right. False bill of goods. <laughs> you know. And I, I uh, yeah, we'll get there. Um, but uh, yeah, I was... I looked at the cover too and I was like, oh, this must be some sort of weird metaphorical. I know this book has to do with dreams and stuff, but no, there's literal actual fucking like flying turtles in this book. So, but the, yeah. the, the, the idea of them being literal is, is actually something that's called into question. Well, right. right. Well, yes. So um, I'll, just a little bit about the book uh, before we get into it. It was published in 1971. Um, it was actually made into a PBS made for TV movie in 1980. And I watched the trailer and like, you know, cumulatively like 10 minutes of it kind of jumping around. And it's like kind of good, but kind of, you know, it's a 1980 PBS made for TV movie also. Yeah, um, right. 
I think I heard, because I watched an interview that Le Guin did with Bill Moyers about the PBS adaptation. And I think Bill Moyers said it was the first ever publicly funded full length made for TV movie. Um, although I could be wrong about that. It, or, or, yeah. If I'm wrong about it, Bill Moyers is wrong about it. Yeah, take it up with Bill. Yeah, so. he's the wrong one. Um, publicly funded maybe being the key word there i don't know yeah 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 yeah. because it was on pbs right um so the the story uh i think is relatively easily summarized it 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 follows um a gentleman by the name of george orr which um is a very very deep sci-fi dystopian cut for anyone who might have read uh uh deeply in the genre deep enough to mine or what are you saying i'm i'm saying like george orwell yeah, yeah george orwell yeah <laughs> um from the great from the hit book 1994 <laughs> <laughs> uh yes and george Orr has a um curious power um curious george okay whoa <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. That was an alley-oop. And uh, he's compared variously in the book to a monkey. So I think the Curious George uh, actual specific comparison comes up at one point. Anyway, George Orr ha has a strange power. And basically, it's that his dreams change reality. Now, not I, I, I read this. I started reading the book. And I was like, oh, OK. Yeah, OK, cool. Kind of weird, guys whose dreams change reality because there's an obvious way that that would happen, right? You have a dream and then it comes true later. That's the sort of like most straightforward way to do that. But that's not what Le Guin does with this premise. And I think she does something really interesting just from the jump, which is that Orr's dreams don't change the future. They literally change the entire history of earth. So right. for example, if, if George Orr has a dream about you know uh uh dewey you know the, so there's that famous image of harry truman with the dewey defeats truman newspaper because uh, dewey was supposed to win that that presidential election and truman won in a landslide if george orr has a dream today about dewey defeating truman in that election then today it will have always been true that dewey had defeated truman Right. So not there's it doesn't there's no like forward projection thing. It literally changes the entire history of the planet from you know whenever the 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 affected moment is. What you guys might do as drooling uh, Disney Marvel hogs <laughs> is you might know this as a retcon. Yes, that's right. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I think that's but it is what helpful. it is though. Yeah, George yeah. Orr can can retcon the history of humanity with his dreams. Right. Um, he lives in a society that's sort of vaguely um, dystopian, potentially post-apocalyptic. It's not super clear. Uh, we can talk about that some more later. And he is um, abusing drugs to try to keep himself from dreaming in his sleep. So he's taking various sorts of supplements and, and other drugs to sleep in such a way as to not have dreams at all because he's afraid of them causing these changes in in 
the world. And of course, he's the only one that notices these changes. So it also changes everybody else's memory, right? So, uh, you know, if he dreams that, you know, this building was blue, the building has always been blue and you will remember it has always having been blue, you know, on your walks past it to work or whatever, even if it was previously red. He is um, given essentially court mandated therapy uh, with a guy named um, William Haber. And William Haber is a um, sort of clinical sleep psychologist type guy uh, who takes an interest in George and his claims and starts doing research on him uh, and ultimately tries to sort of manipulate George's power for his own uh, goals and ends. And um, George then goes to a lawyer to see about getting a new uh, psychiatrist or you know, potentially just getting Haber out of his life. Um, and the lawyer's name is Heather yeah if there's any french scholar french language podcasts please be a guest i'm gonna go with lalash yeah um and they develop something of a of a romance and uh things spiral in ways that i think we'll probably get into and that's pretty much the the, the story yeah it's kind of a, a basic uh, premise for a sci-fi story. It's like a simple kind of outline, simple idea that is explored kind of very in-depthly. I, I, I think um, setting up how his dreams affect reality in the first couple chapters with uh, Haber was actually really cool. Like they dive deep into like how REM sleep works. And you, you, I could tell that Le Guin really definitely like explored this like this idea in a very smart way um it, yeah. it um it yeah it, it like what i thought of more so is just like and i guess this is kind of true of, of a lot of sci-fi where there's like a conceit that's elaborated upon you know to put the most crudely but like like a, a philosophical thought experiment is like what i was thinking of essentially where like you know, even, you know, the whole thing about being able to retcon the entire memory from, you know, the inception of humanity onward. I mean, there's still questions of like, if were there no memories, like, would this matter? Like, how far back does this reverberate and all these kind of like, super nitpicky things you could do, but you can tell Le Guin like, had been sitting on it, which is why I think like you said, Gabe, right out the gate, she's like, and everyone always thought this was the case. And this is a key distinction of the power. And only George Orr is aware of uh, existing in, in, a, in an alternate kind of parallel reality, having like, you know, essentially killed the other branching of it. And he, it's part of his extreme discomfort in general at, that accumulates over the course of the book because like the world is just this like palimpsest of, of written and erased an overwritten narrative that he remembers all of and it gets jumbled up in his head. Yeah, there's one point when uh, Orr is describing sort of what the process see seems like to him as it's happening. And it, he talks about re one reality being laid over another, exactly like you just said, Matt. Uh, and of course, Haber and to some degree, Lalash, Heather, 
they come to be aware of this as well and can sort of experience it. But uh, or is really the only one who can kind of like directly feel it happening um, rather than just having a sort of like vague awareness of it. And yeah, I think what you said earlier, Matt, is right on that, you know, this is Le Guin, like all the best sci-fi writers is, is a philosopher as her night job. Right. And uh, this book is packed with philosophical sort of problems, some really old, some sort of new, um, some kind of uh, uh, new takes on some old problems and some new problems entirely. So I think it's really interesting from that perspective as well, obviously. I didn't pick up on too many of the philosophical things. I think they went over my head, but a few passages I did underline that I, maybe I should read one right now. What do you do think it. about that? Uh, it's on page 82. All right. So kind of like in the middle of the book. Um, it's kind of like two thirds of the way down or one third. Um, I can't, I can answer your questions and I do, but anyway, look, you can't go on changing things, trying to run things. You speak, you speak as if that were some kind of general moral imperative. He looked at Orr with his genial, reflective smile, stroking his beard. This is uh, Haber. But in fact, isn't, the, isn't that man's very purpose on earth to, to do things, change things, run things, make a better world? No. What is his purpose then? I don't know. Things don't have purposes. As if the universe were a machine where every part has a useful function. What's the function of a galaxy? I don't know if our life has purpose, and I don't, I don't see that it matters. What what does matter is that we're apart, like a thread in a cloth or a grass blade in a field. It is, and we are. What we do is like wind blowing on the grass. I really like that passage. Right. Haber, Haber is sort of like, he literally becomes an outsized like uh, representation for the sort of like, I fucking love science, mechanistic, you know, like yes. I would say, do, I would say dominant worldview, which, which uh, I think is, is clearly still the case. You know, there's, there's a couple, it's like, there, there's essentially like, a, I don't know, a, two kind of dialectical relationships between like ways of being here that are being ping-ponged back and forth uh, throughout the whole story. And or or is almost like a Buddhist or something. He's he's way more like he's kind of, you know, he's way more like be like water kind of, you know, we are we are, are part of a whole and be yeah. more Yeah. Yeah, it's def there is definitely the sort of like, you know, action versus inaction, you know, dialectic there with or being the sort of and there's all these you know Taoist quotes from the Tao Te Ching and stuff sprinkled right. through the, the the text at the beginning of chapters and and um that's something that Le Guin was sort of deeply aware of and conversant with with some of these eastern philosophical traditions and so there's this you know yeah this push and pull between taking action to change the world and sort of using passivity and inaction as a as a form of action itself or as as the correct way to approach the the, the flow of things um and the book really goes out of its way to paint or even in his own sort of personal life as this just passive like blah just 
dude just the most ordinary dude possible the the meaty Bubble part block. of the bell curve in every sense yes yeah yeah there's i thought that section that was great there's a great section towards the end of the book when haber haber asks him uh wait what oh just where he's just like we took your height and basic body measurements and they're all like in they're all cleave to the mean so perfectly that you literally might not might as well not exist <laughs> yeah exactly and, that, and that's also true of like all of his psychological tests he takes like various sorts of rorschach tests and all this stuff and it all just comes out as like perfectly it's literally just the perfect mean every time he's just the most boring like blah person well paul like right by there on 83 i underlined um you know, just some stuff that came about because you're starting to get a sense of Haber, the doctor who's who's sent to do these like oniurological. I don't know how do you say that. That sounds pretty good. Dream studies of dreams, uh, experiments on him uh, because or, or to to clarify, like or it is forced into this position with this doctor on a quote unquote, you know, voluntary basis because he broke the law by taking a an illegal non-regulated allotment of like uh pet pills slash sleeping pills or whatever um but so Which, by the way i just want to flag that it's hilarious and a, a, just a funny little dystopian like touch that leguin adds here where he's the the way it works is you we can you can either go to voluntary therapy or we're gonna force you to go to forced therapy right. <laughs> so it's like forced either way it's a lot like I I'd watched THX like 11:38 recently and they they do that shit where it's like you open your medicine cabinet and then a, a camera turns on and it's like we are count we counted every pill you've taken and there's all these allotments and then you have to go to this like automated confessional booth if you do bad things it's great but he it just says here um this is no one's like talking it's just uh, a little chunk it says the end justifies the means but what if uh, there never is an end and all we have is means. Uh, and it made me think of like one of them, you know, um, I forget what it is, Gabe or Paul, maybe you know. It's like, I, I think it's called the horse parable or something where like this uh, this farmer wins a horse in a bet or in a lotto or something. And everyone's like, oh, that's awesome. Like, or like his horse gave birth to a new horse and whatever. Everyone's like, the blessings of are upon you. You like, you know, you have a horse, and his his constant refrain through the parable is like, "We shall see," right? And then like, the horse grows up, and uh, the man's son is riding it, and the horse is like rambunctious, and it kicks the the guy's son off, and the son breaks his arm, and they're like, "Oh man, actually, it kind of sucked that the horse was born and you had the horse, like." Cause it caused this injury. And then the guy's like, we shall see. And then a war breaks out and this, his son's not eligible for combat because he's injured. And then they're like, Oh wow, actually it was great that about the horse. Cause now it led to your son not being able to, and just kind of like the notion of like, it never ends in a continuum of like, you don't know what these reverberations will lead to. And they kind of don't lead to anything. You just have to sit and watch and let kind of like time dictate the, you know, the contextual, you know, emotional tenor of whatever had happened. I think that's a great, good, I don't, I'm not, not actually, I wasn't actually familiar with that story, Matt, but I think that's a great sort of analogy to kind of like, to Orr's outlook on all of this, which is kind of just like, 
it's the Wu way, baby. It's the, you just have to, have to, you know, let, let, let it flow and, and sort of be a, you know, passenger on the stream, baby, or whatever. Yeah, bro. And we're on the marble, I, this Carl Sagan yeah. marble. Yeah, just the, the pale blue dot, baby. And we shared DNA with bananas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and monkeys eat bananas and we're monkeys. So we basically are doing cannibalism. Uh, <laughs> full circle circle of life it's the circle of life i have, I have, I have, to, I have to leave oh my god I'm killed gonna, him uh, yeah. yeah man i just needed a drink of water got some mm. got some some juice down the wrong tube yeah um so so anyway I, the other thing that i wanted to pick up on on what you said matt and and, and that that passage you read about the ends and the means is that Haber is also meant to represent, I think, pretty straightforwardly, the, the dangers of a sort of blind utilitarian moral philosophy where all you're concerned, and this is Haber's sort of, from his own perspective, his motivation is about the, you know, doing the most good for the greatest number. As a matter of fact, at one point in the book, one of the inscriptions above Haber's um, institute that he works at which he creates by having or dream up the institute for him to work at it right um one of the inscriptions is i believe the greatest good for the greatest number or something along those lines and uh of course you know haber in manipulating or's dreams in in ways that he thinks will uh bring about this sort of utilitarian paradise um of course, results in hideous, hideous misfires and like moral horror from almost any other perspective. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's the classic sort of like, um, you know, uh, scene from, from Harry Potter when they go down into, it's the, you know, it's like all these like, <laughs> but I'm serious, no. <laughs> but I'm serious though, because I did just watch it because of Christmas, you know, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the classic sort of technical, like, technicalities that make the thing terrible you know so in harry potter the the goblin brings them down into the into the vault and they made an agreement oh you have to bring us down to the vault safely and blah 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 and then he locks them in and says i never said anything about getting you out i'm an i'm a racist jew goblin because jk rowling's <laughs> terrible um, you but, can't you, know, you never said anything about leaving <laughs> But it's that same sort of thing, right? You know, where Haber says, we'll say something like, I want uh, human beings to stop fighting amongst themselves, right? And so, or dreams uh, that an alien race invades the planet. And so the humans stop fighting amongst themselves and have to unite against fighting this alien invasion, right? So Which, it's, it's that sort of thing. Hey, Alan Moore, that's, the, that's how they end. That's how, you know... Uh, Ozymandias, Ozymandias ends fighting in Watchmen, so I, oh. he had to have bitten it. George Orzymandias? I don't know. <laughs> Al Alan Orr? There we go. Now I'm liking that a lot more. <laughs> well, the whole, like, super contingent, like, follow the letter of the law, if not its intent, kind of dream, you know, wish-granting thing is also, like, classically what genies used to do because they were like demons and uh yeah yes, they they, yes. they would have like wish granting abilities but they would always try and fuck you over by like 
catching a random vagary in your wording that they could use. And and that's very much the sort of thing that happens in Orr's dream interpretations of Haber's utilitarian sort of calls. You know, another example is, you know, Haber says, he, he says, I want you to, to dream that there's no, there has never been and there is no longer any racial strife in the world. And Orr's dream produces a world inhabited by essentially indistinguishable gray-skinned <laughs> beings that have no, yeah. like, no distinguishing features, no distinguishing, like, backgrounds. It's, it's a very much like a sort of white people have no culture moment. <laughs> um, Where it's like, oh, all these people are from regions that are diverse, but they're all just gray. And it makes no difference. They look like wet well, newspaper. I, yeah, exactly. I think the, the most interesting aspect about, like, particularly that example to me was like, a, you know, what is the, what is the morality behind this act of like, a, if, if reality only exists now and forever has existed by, with these gray humans and only one person on the planet, George Orr, remembers an alternate reality, like, is that a horrible thing? Like, from our perspective and for, from George's perspective, it's like, yeah, it totally is. And obviously, the, the society is, like, utilitarian. But that, I, th I think that was, like, an interesting question for me when I was reading it. Is like, you know, from, from George's perspective, all these people are dying that he remembers from alternate realities. But from everyone else's, those realities never existed. And we, we don't have any sense if they do exist any other in any other like other dimension or anything well yeah i mean i think there's a lot there's a lot in there i, I mean i think specifically on the on the example of the sort of race the world of like the gray non-racial people you know part of what part of what makes that example kind of poignant in the context of the story is that george's relationship with heather had been sort of developing up to that point and heather had sort of confided in him and had a discussion about being mixed race and sort of being like unsure about her, you know, like sort of place in the cultural landscape. And, you know, her father was like a, you know, Black Panther kind of like SNCC activist. And her mother was this like white, white hippie lady. And they were all, they, there was you know some tensions in their relationship that were racially based. And kind of, they kind of had this interesting conversation about it. And it sort of is implying that her racial sort of that that race and the histories surrounding race were really sort of formative and important in her identity and the question becomes like what what is the world like if all of that is taken away because like you're saying paul obviously if we just retconned racism out of human history <laughs> it would it would obviously erase a, a ton of hideous and unnecessary suffering and evil which is sort of Haber's perspective. Haber's like, yeah, great, gray world, like awesome. But right. what is what is lost? Is it is it a sort of baby with the bathwater situation where you also lose what people view as really integral and, and important parts of their identity and their culture and their history? Um, and how do you sort of balance those scales? And one of the things that I like about the book and about Le Guin in general is that she doesn't give you answers to those questions. Like, I don't think Haber is a straightforward villain in this book at all. No. And in fact, oh, I, I mean, I, she, I, I saw him uh, as a villain. He becomes, but. I mean, 
he becomes some somewhat cartoonishly villainous, I think, towards the end. I mean, he literally becomes like basically sin from Final Fantasy X at the end of the fucking book. And like, but I think that's what one of the other things that like you become more and more aware of, I think, as you're reading is that like George Orr is also the one dictating the pace and he's one guy. And even Haber kind of calls out like, yeah, I wish I had this fucking power because I'm, I have to go it through your stupid, skewed, subjective perspective on on an interpretation of what I'm asking you to do directly. Uh, but so Haber becomes he does he does he grow larger? He gets physically larger, right? As as the book goes on, he's not I, I, as big as he is at the end. And like they make a big point that he's like this giant, ursine Santa Claus guy at the end and he was which, like, which i think is probably like meant to imply that haber like right dreams he instructs or to dream of him in haber's vision of like uh, the ideal male form or something like that maybe or or that george Orr is just now regarding him more and more as like this outsized figure in his life and unintentionally well, making him literally physically bigger <laughs> yeah i mean i I don't know if you guys read it this way, but I, I almost read George Orr as like Haber's scared, like timid, weakling son, and he kind of he kind of thought of he kind of thought thinks of Haber as like his overbearing scientific dad, and he's kind of going along with his plans because he's kind of like afraid of him, and uh, Haber's like also his like gifted a, child. Yeah, I, I I was reading a lot of like weird father son dynamics. With their relationship but i also think of haber as kind of like a manip manipulating psychopath not i mean a psychopath but he like definitely manipulates people in his practice um and manipulates or quite a bit to like keep going along with his his augmenter experiments mm -hmm. yeah i mean from a um, from a uh uh hippocratic oath perspective Sort of medical malpractice ethics. What Haber's doing is certainly like questionable. Um, although yeah. they do, you know, she does make a big deal out of having Heather, who is a lawyer, in the first sort of iteration of the story we see, uh, come in and observe Haber and say to or like, "Look, man, he everything he's doing is actually above board legally, um, at least in the society that they're in." We can talk about sort of morally in the bigger picture, but yeah. The society yeah, they that they—they do live in a society. <laughs> uh, even at the very beginning, though, I think it's—it's it's important to mention, right? Like what ills existed at the start, and then how. The other thing that I was thinking of, and I cannot remember the name of this book. It's a children's book, and it's kind of—it's got a similar. It's in the similar vein to like the horse parable, if that's even what it's called. Someone, if someone knows, tell us. Uh, curious, curious George Orr. If there's any horse parable podcasts out there, <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have you on. Uh, of like this king who has like mice in his castle, and he buys like cats, and then like the cats take over the castle, and he gets like dogs, and then he gets like lions and tigers, and then he, you know he just like it's just this massive chain where he eventually just destroys his whole kingdom because he keeps bringing in a stronger solution to the prior one, which quote unquote solved the previous problem, but like made a bigger one. Yes. Once again, 
you know, just kind of like I'm just collating similar parables. <laughs> yeah, kind of like similar stories imparting like the same lesson. And like I didn't know that Le Guin was a anarchist because I, that kind of does clarify a little bit. Um because like otherwise you know, yeah, I I felt a little I, I liked the fact that it's not clear, but the book felt way more about the process of these forces of, uh, you know, the, the these ideas as forces in society, I don't know, combating each other, basically. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I definitely think you're right to, to keep coming back to some of these sort of morality tales or or you know sort of less like parables with lit lessons um the 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 story definitely has a sort of and i know this is the wrong word but i don't know what the right word is but i know it's gonna i know it's wrong don't make fun of me but it's like parabolic (laughs) (laughs) in a way i what what is the word for that uh parable parable like damn what is what is it? Parable, par- it's probably like parable-esque or something. I don't know. Um, well, well, I that, that kind of rolls off my tongue anyway. What? I, oh, I almost missed my first point, which is just like their original situation was one in which uh, there's just a. Uh, it's 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 like it feels very. Um, I guess we're still talking about this stuff, but this is this felt a little much like the '70s, like uh, mm. overpopulation and 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 pollution like those were those seem to be like the initial kind of problems the world was facing in the in the in the a reality before we get or changing stuff up and like and like vague uh middle east conflict which has been a constant in western life for yeah i mean as far as i've existed that's yeah that's also just been a thing middle eastern life of course (laughs) (laughs) nice save game yeah but but but, i mean yeah i mean i think in the you know it's well the obvious thing to say about that is that it's fucking depressing that we're still talking about fucking climate change when you know they knew so clearly what it was what it was gonna look like and do in 1970 what was it silent spring that was like the yeah rachel carson uh i don't know i don't know exactly when i should know that but even Orr is like bummed out about it. But yeah, that those are kind of like the 62. initial things. Is like we have you know seven billion people, I guess, in the in the in the book, and there's like there's racial tensions and there's like resource shortages and shit like that, and like acid rain and and stuff's kind of bad in those ways. So okay, if 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 any if nobody would mind a, a bit of an extended reading, because I I think that passage is really important when. They are specifically doing the overpopulation dream and what Orr's kind of response is and how they all react to it. Sure. Um, so this is this is the, so this scene just to set it up a little bit is Orr in Haber's office with the augment augmenter hooked up to his brain, and uh, Haber instructs him to dream about solving the overpopulation problem, basically, right? To dream and the impossible dream. To dream the. D- Living the dream. <laughs> um, and of course, right, like we should say overpopulation was not then and probably still isn't a, a problem. We're not, we're not fucking eco-fash on this podcast. Uh, 
Paul? I'm not anyway. Paul, you eat fash? <laughs> no. Nice. Okay. But anyway, so uh, and um, um, Heather is there as well. Uh, Lelange. And um, she's there to observe and make sure everything is sort of going on above board. And this is, so this is sort of the first big moment where we see what or George's dreams are capable of. Um, and I think it's just, A, I think it's a really well-written passage. I think there's some really interesting moral implications here. And it tells us a lot about sort of this, where the book goes and the structure. So, so this is Haber. Uh, what page are you on? I'm on 62 and I'm going all the way up to 65. Woo! I'm at the bottom of 62 though. He, so this is the he here is referring to Haber. He could not go on talking. His mouth had gone dry. He felt it. The shift, the arrival, the change. The woman felt it too. She looked frightened, holding the heavy brass necklace up close to her throat like a talisman. She was staring in dismay, shock, terror out the window at the view. He had not expected that. He had thought that only he could be aware of the change. But she had heard him tell Orr what to dream. She had stood beside the dreamer. She was there at the center like him, and like him had turned to look out the window at the vanishing towers fade like a dream, leave not a rack behind, the insubstantial miles of suburb dissolving like smoke on the wind, the city of Portland, which had had a population of a million people before the plague years, but had only about 100,000 these days of the recovery, a mess and jumble like all American cities, but unified by its hills and its misty seven-bridged river, the old 40-story First National Bank building dominating the downtown skyline and far beyond, above it all, the serene and pale mountains. She saw it happen, and he realized that he had never once thought that the HEW observer might see it happen. It hadn't been a possibility. He hadn't given it a thought, and this implied that he himself had not believed in the change in what Orr's dreams did. Though he had felt it, seen it, with bewilderment, fear, and exultation a dozen times now, though he had watched the horse become a mountain, if you can watch the overlap of one reality with another, though he had been testing and using the effective power of Orr's dreams for nearly a month now, yet he had not believed in what was happening. The whole day from his arrival at work on, he had not given one thought to the fact that a week ago, he had not been the director of the Oregon Oneurological Institute because there had been no institute. Ever since last Friday, there had been an institute for the last 18 months. And he had been its founder and director, and this being the way it was for him, for everyone on the staff and his colleagues at the medical school and the government that funded it, he had accepted it totally, just as they did, as the only reality. He had suppressed his memory of the fact that until last Friday, this had not been the way that it was. That had been Orr's most successful dream by far. It had begun in the old office across the river under the damned mural photograph of Mount Hood and had ended in this office. And he had been there, had seen the walls change around him, had known that the world was being remade and had forgotten it. He had forgotten it so completely that he had never even wondered if a stranger, a third person might have the same experience. What would it do to the woman? Would she understand? Would she go mad? What would she do? Would she keep both memories as he did, the true one and the new one, the old one and the true one? She must not. She would not interfere bring in, she would interfere, bring in other observers, spoil the experiment completely, wreck his plans. He would stop her at any cost. He turned to her ready for violence, his fists clenched. She was just standing, standing there. Her brown skin had gone livid. Her mouth was open. She was dazed. She could not believe what she had seen out that window. She could not and did not. Haber's extreme physical tension relaxed a little. He was fairly sure looking at her that she was so confused and traumatized as to be harmless, but he must move quickly all the same. 
He'll sleep for a while now, he said. His voice sounded almost normal, though hoarsened by the tightness of his throat muscles. He had no idea what he was going to say, but plunged ahead anyway, uh, plunged ahead, anything to break the spell. I'll let him have a short S sleep period now, not too long, or his dream recall will be poor. It's a nice view, isn't it? These easterly winds we've been having, they're a godsend. In fall and winter, I don't see the mountains for months at a go, but when the clouds clear off, there they are. It's a great place, Oregon. Most unspoiled state in the Union. Wasn't exploited much before the crash. Portland was just beginning to get big in the late 70s. Are you a native Oregonian? After a minute, she nodded groggily. The matter-of-fact tone in his voice, if nothing else, was getting through to her. I'm from New Jersey originally. It was terrible there when I was a kid. The environmental deterioration, the amount of tearing down and cleaning up the East Coast had to do after the crash and is still doing. It's unbelievable. Out here, the real damage of overpopulation and environmental mismanagement hadn't yet been done except in California. The Oregon ecosystem was still intact. It was dangerous, this talking right on the critical subject, but he could not think of anything else. He was as if compelled. His head was too full, holding the two sets of memories, two full systems of information, one, the real, no longer world, with a human population of nearly 7 billion and increasing geometric geometrically, and one, the real now world, with a population of less than 1 billion and still not stabilized. My God, he thought, what has Orr done? 6 billion people, where are they? So I think that that sort of passage is sort of interesting in that it is both the sort of main, the, the, the first huge moral event in the book that Orr essentially retcons the lives of 6 billion people off the planet and also sort of describes I think interestingly, like what it what it's like for these characters undergoing this this experience, because all of that stuff you'll remember that I was just reading about the plague and the crash and all that that's never mentioned before this exact moment. And the implication there is that that is their brains sort of rewiring and reforming memories about something that never actually happened or that happened only in a retconned way because or dreamed it. And it does create this this idea that maybe being at the epicenter uh, allows you enough lag time to even have the discomfort of the memory, you know, as vague as it might be or as like uh, weak as it might be, because that's the first yeah. time you you get the sense, and then there's you know, that's actually the first time there's a suspicion with Haber that he knows what's happening. That's the first time it's confirmed. And that also in the, in the same instant that a third part, like another person could also have experienced it. And it's like, it has something to do with like proximity to, to or. It kind of reminded me of uh, the Mandela effect, Gabe. We watched that <laughs> how, how to episode and we were talking about how like those kind of uh, those kind of Mandela effect memories people have, which we discover we both have a few of them, which is really odd, kind of does seem like history or like, you know, the timeline was rewritten in a way that you can't even believe it. It There is this massive change to a, a, a box of stuffing. I, if there are any <laughs> Mandela effect podcasts out there, um, this book should be, this, this book should be like, a number one read for Mandela effect uh, enthusiasts. That's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> it really is true. I just want to go on. I want to go on record that I believe in the Mandela effect, and I am uh, open to the possibility of it being 
multiple universes, quantum theory, slippage shit that I don't understand at all. Whoa. Of course you would. You fucking bomb throwing anarchists. Fucking everything's crazy. What do those things have to do with each other? Uh, you know <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> I'm joking. I don't know what I mean. Matt, do you believe in the Mandela effect? Of course. I, yeah, I had what's, the what's, Berenstein, which, which, yeah, the Berenstein Bears, dude. I had that motherfucking shit was totally blew my mind when someone even brought it up. I was like, ah. Oh. It was Berenstein, bro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and R- Raisin Brand, the Raisin Brand son had freaking sunglasses. He fucking had sunglasses, Brand. dude. He fucking had them. Does he not? He never did. He doesn't. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> he doesn't have them. It's George Orr. He's still at it. And that's the George Orr thing. Not only, not only. Does Are you he not, kidding me? Yeah, it's George Orr. Sunglasses. Not only so does, not only does I, he not have them, but he never did have them. Fuck you. Who makes the who makes the famous Thanksgiving stuffing in the box? Stouffer's. Nope, it's Kraft, and it's always it's been Kraft. Kraft. It's always been Kraft. That one got me too. I'm so happy you said that. It's fucking Stouffer's. But Don't tell me it's to Kraft. calm down, dude, because you can't tell me to calm down because we're not friends anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's real. So I think that that I, you know this sounds frivolous, but it's actually kind of what. I'm what shook. the experience of undergoing a George Orr dream moment must be like uh, to some degree, even though, you know, in this book, it's even more complete because nobody even remembers it being differently, except in like very, very vague ways. Like, um, you know, Heather, Heather, like accidentally walks into a wall at one point where she was sure there wasn't one before. And that's sort of these very, very small things. And she accidentally tries to go to the wrong building for work one day. Yeah. Um, and that kind of stuff, but no one's quite as aware of it as as the sort of Mandela effect examples are. And and I think Le Guin, I guess, apparently being as a, a little more like you know robust, and I got like like her political perspective or or whatever. Um, and this book certainly doesn't shy away from that stuff. But like like you were saying, the Mandela effect does kind of put you in 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 a, in a sort of headspace that maybe George Orr is experiencing. Yeah, which you know. I mean, my reactions were genuine just then. Uh, like, is the intended effect created on, like, people generally, you know, I guess through, like, they're, like way more, like, localized retconning and, like, propaganda and stuff, <laughs> right? Like, people do just, you do end up feeling fucking crazy. And so I don't know if she's maybe just sort of, I feel like she's she's got so many things happening in parallel in her mind, even through something as concise and kind of short as this book, that like I wouldn't be surprised. She's like, let's throw this idea in here too, where like I'm kind of also trying to like uh, describe just kind of what it's like to be an American citizen, you know, even as far back as '71. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up the sort of like propaganda, like like mass government gaslighting angle <laughs> right uh because there are a few little bits in here that i think like hint at that or suggest that i mean one thing that happens is that the alien invasion turns out to be totally peaceful and it was like a misunderstanding and the u.s government just wound up killing a bunch of its own citizens and like didn't even kill any of the aliens and um uh the aliens actually like start living in society and like selling like fucking antique furniture and stuff which is they just do, hilarious yeah. it's really cool yeah um but one one little 
it was a, it's really almost like a throwaway line, but I found it to be really interesting. And I wrote it down. Let me just make sure I can find the um, uh, the reference. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to. But at one point, um, Orr is sort of reflecting on his dreams and the things that how radically things changed from one to the other. And the alien, there's aliens on the moon, and then they invade, and then there was a plague, and <laughs> it wiped out like you know almost all the world's population and stuff. But he reflects and he sort of thinks quizzically about the fact that one of the only things that never changes ever in any of his dreams is who the president is. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's such a fucking smart, like funny little detail. Myrtle. Yeah. Myrtle. His name is Myrtle. 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 It's so American of him. And I think that sort of just speaks to, um, okay. So I'll, 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 I'm the gonna, boss. I'm the boss. You work for me. <laughs> I'm President Myrtle. <laughs> I've always been the president. It's hot and dry. People want wet and cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually think this book is really political in a few ways that I, I, I'll just get into now, I guess. And I, I'd be curious if you guys thought about this or, or picked up on these or, or anything. Because I'm, I always read Le Guin politically because that's how I was introduced to her and that's my sort of main interest in her her sort of um, line of thinking in general. But I think that this is also a commentary and this is one of the reasons that I think Haber is not a, entirely a villain um, is that I think that the book is a commentary on human the the sort of failure of the human imagination to imagine how ways in which things could be better and our like willingness to just be like you know x y or z thing about our world sucks but it's so deeply ingrained that we that we have a tendency to take it as completely natural whether that's war or racial discrimination or uh capitalism or any of these things so it's you know it's like we have all of these horrible things that even in even in our dreams, even in literal dreams, like George Orr is having, we our minds cannot wrap themselves around how they could be genuinely different. The only way to solve war is more war for George. The only way to solve racism is by like getting rid of all of these other good things about human life. Um, and yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of the book's message to me is that we we just haven't imagined greatly enough what our world could be like and that's a that's a common sort of anarchist and and left leftist refrain in general yeah i think uh, i didn't underline it in it um but there was a passage that it basically be reiterating what you just said but there is a passage where um or is talking about how he he basically screwed up into it like from haber's perspective because he he didn't dream the correct like peaceful dream and he basically says you know that he uh can't imagine a world without those things even in his dream life um i didn't read that as being political but i am uh maybe i don't have the political mindset but i thought it was interesting for sure that's just like a humanistic throw like throwaway line i think i did um underline it paul i think it's on 86 uh where they're talking about how or just sort of replaced war with with more war and it's right in the middle there and he says but i guess i can't or my subconscious can't even imagine a warless world the best it can do is substitute one kind of war for another you said no killing of humans by other humans so i dreamed up the aliens 
your own ideas are sane and rational, but this is my unconscious you're trying to use, not my rational mind. Maybe rationally, I could conceive of the human species not trying to kill each other off by nations. In fact, rationally, it's easier to conceive of that, that than the motives of war. But you're handling something outside of reason. You're trying to reach progressive humanitarian goals with a tool that isn't suited to the job. Who has humanitarian dreams? Yeah, I love that. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of read that as like a criticism of both the inability for humans to um, like have an like an exorbitant imagination or you know like a really high level imagination but also a uh, criticism of just how our world has been full of war for so long that like it's obviously hard to imagine a world world without it right yeah i like and this is uh you know or or is almost saintly a bit in this book and i think these are the only these are the couple instances where i feel like he gets kind of almost like a, a just criticism and and lives up to the milk toast fucking means tested just sort of average brain <laughs> that he's been sort of described as having for the whole book where he yeah like he does kind of lack imagination it's why he hates having the power because you know he's not in control of his subconscious and Haber kind of does have a point in that regard, I would say, right? Like, you know, ha Haber's a villainous because yeah. he's harnessing a human being for his own ends because he's uh, just, you know, he's a it, he's a Udals and Dolors bean counter. Uh, he dons. <laughs> he dons. <laughs> but yeah, I would say that the the greatest criticism of Orr that I see I, I see in the book is. Are, are you know is the is his lack of the ability to not create like the crudest solutions in his subconscious to any lar large problem large scale problem I, I i guess i would not disagree but maybe push back a little bit in the sense that i think that like the other side of that coin is that or is also correct that like just saying the phrase like yeah stop war is not gonna fucking help anybody it's stupid and it's essentially meaningless without some sort of grander vision or understanding of how do you how do you cash that out how do you flesh that out like and i think you know haber comes it comes off to me as just a sort of like warren voter shit lib who's just yeah. like yeah, uh, racism's over because uh, I put a line in my saw, uh, sign in my lawn, and and uh, you know I voted for Obama twice, and I you know, I, I would have voted for him a third <laughs> term, bro. And they're like, hey, racism bad, stop it. Racism is bad, stop it. Haber is a guy with the the sign uh, in this house. We believe science is real, love is love, whatever. Exactly, that is exactly you know, who I, Haber is. I don't. I I see him as like a little bit worse than that. I I do see some like libertarian elements to Haber, and like. You have to be a strong man. You have to survive this harsh world, um, especially towards the end when the society, like there's someone who gets dragged away and euthanized on the street by a citizen's arrest because he uh, has, has cancer. cancer and yeah. they want to like basically not have anyone in the gene pool that can reproduce that will give, you know, their offspring cancer. And well, not Haber's to defend like, libertarians. Totally but that's like the opposite of libertarianism. That's yeah. just like that's full on fascism and 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 eugenics, you know, uh, eugenics. Which well, I didn't, I didn't. No, no liberty. Yeah, I didn't mean like that wasn't an example of liber his libertarianism. I was more so like saying that he's kind of like 
single man, like pick yourself up by your bootstraps, George Orr, because you need to be a strong man and you just can't, and I'm going to control you. Um, but that's more of like the, the Nazism of Haber he's, than libertarianism. I think he's, I think what you're picking up on is still just kind of like almost the, uh, the stoicism that is kind of like a byproduct of utilitarianism where you're like, suck, fucking suck it up. We got to like make the hard decisions. You know, and it's like you need a strong man to do that. So it's kind of conducive to this other kind of, you know, very reductive stereotypical behavior or, or self-conception. Because I, I wrote down, uh, you know, the, just right here, it just said, as there was no visible limit to the power Haber wielded through Orr's dreams, so there was no end to his determination to improve the world, which was like, is written as a threat and is kind of like the progressive notion you know sort of i think pretty concisely said like and ultimately i think of course haber's imagination is shown to be the most feeble and and pathetic of all because he so the climax of the book haber puts the augmenter on himself and tries to like direct his own dreams basically and it just like yeah, like Matt's comparison to sin is pretty good. It just essentially, <laughs> essentially just starts melting reality and creates this like black hole that just is destroying <laughs> everything. Um, well, it's funny because Haber initially it's like kind of just like played for laughs. It's like Haber's Haber's like this onion that you just keep peeling back layers and he's just, you know, and like there's all these jokes about him having no core. And then it's just he literally turns into like a fucking black hole through his own dreams like the realization of his actual deeper deepest inner workings is that he's just this black hole and i think that that's true of people who are sort of like cut from haber's cloth in general they have a sort of suite of like i'm for the good things like i'm against racism and i'm for stopping war and stuff but like it doesn't go any further than that. Yeah, right. The, there's the core, the, the notion of there being no core is the huge final statement about Haber and his whole worldview and moral system and like being, which I think is like pretty brutal. Like, and, and that's, I mean, you know, I, I feel like that's what we kind of have talked about in a couple of other books too, even like, people like feeling adrift all these other kind of issues because uh there's no means to create the grounds to stand upon and most people don't have them or most people just have a sort of litany of of positions or policies that they like and then there's just like there's no there there and that's why you should read 12 years uh for uh for life 12, by 12 peterson that was almost such a good mistake that you made. <laughs> I literally thought you were about to say 12 rules for slave. <laughs> 12 years of life. 12 years. Uh, I think, uh, I do think the, this, I mean, one thing that just to harp on this point about the failure of imagination politically for just one more second yeah, is that this is, this almost struck me as like a proto, like Mark Fisher claim, you know, Mark Fisher's, capitalist realism the, the famous line like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism in this book it literally is easier to imagine the end of reality than like no more war right it's different it's different substance but it's 
it's the same kind of structure of the argument, it seems to me. Gabe, isn't that Frederick Jameson? It might have been. A, uh, Jameson said something like that, but Fisher popularized it. I don't know who I don't know who said got, the exact quote. And I got you, and Gabe's a PhD, and I got him. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm looking up right now. You're fucking not smarter than me, dude. <laughs> you're not smarter than me. You're not. <laughs> I basically I, I basically went to a Ivy League school, dude. So uh, I read the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> <laughs> when um, while Gabe's doing that, when Haber turned into a black hole, uh. I feel like there was a little cheeky reference to there's multiple uh, attributions to the quote. But it's but Fisher is never the first one. It's either Jameson or Zizek. <laughs> and I guess who was born first is the how you're gonna solve that. I, your mom. Yeah, fuck you, dude. <laughs> Ad hominem, I think. <laughs> Don't know true Scotsman me or whatever you're doing. I'm, I'm pretty sure the person that said that first was uh Richard Dawkins. God is not great. Uh that's Christopher Hitchens. Oh, got him. Fuck! <laughs> I'm at the God delusion. I'm at the God delusion. Fuck all those guys, by the way. They're all idiots. Yeah, they're all British, so fuck them. Uh, but a little cheeky reference to Salvador Dali time clock melty thing. Because I remember there's just like this fun bit of like visually interesting prose as he's trying to like get to... I thought it was really awesome. Like he's trying to get to Haber's office and Haber is like just demolishing reality with his very being. And uh, all these, like <laughs> all the buildings are melting, like into the like dried out dead riverbed and like by Orr's sheer force of will of, and, and like memory, he is standing on solid ground where none is and all this kind of stuff. I, I, I thought that that was like actually really fucking sick just from a, concept visual perspective i was like fuck yeah yeah, yeah. i like that part sin yeah. haber sin haber <laughs> the lathe of heaven directed by christopher nolan <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say there's a little bit of christopher nolan in there in that moment uh i do have to say i kind of feel i know you guys don't watch the office but on this particular book i kind of feel like andy watching uh like watching the movie with uh, Jim and Pam. You guys don't know what I'm talking about, do you? No, no. Okay. All right. Well, our, our, some of our listeners might, and they'll, sure. they're probably laughing really hard right now. That's kind of how, <laughs> well, finish even your comparison, because I don't know what the, what's the situation. Well, well uh, Andy's trying to, like, talk about the movie they're watching, and, you know, they watch it on their break, so they watch, like, 20 minutes at a time. And Jim and Pam are talking about, they're actually talking about, like, the relationship of Pam's parents, but they're pretending to talk about the movie. And Annie's just kind of sitting there like, you guys are just so, you're like on another level right now. And that's kind of how I feel. Cause I read this in like a purely sci-fi simple story way. And I didn't pick up on any of the political references at all. So um, that, yeah, it's, it's a funny comparison. I mean, I, I don't think it's. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, that's sci-fi has always been political. I think you know, it's a, it's a, it's not that she's making like explicit references exactly. I just think that she's exploring these topics in a really interesting way. Speculative fiction style, like, mm. I mean, yeah, because she's not. I don't. She's the thing she's 
exploring the most, it seemed to me, was like, yeah, these, I don't know, this hapless guy who is capable of doing this thing with a very different perspective on the world, and then, like, this other guy, Haber. It felt very much or Haber battle, you know? That's that's mostly how I read it, yeah. By and large. Their interpersonal relationship was, like, what I was picking up on the most. What did you guys make of the... The, the romance between Lelof, Lalesh, Lelosh. I was yeah. gonna say, I said Lelof, like Lelathe of Heaven, but it's <laughs> Lelosh. Like, what did you make? What did you make of their relationship? Because the book sort of ends on a poignant note of them kind of like doing like a, like a 50 first dates thing, um, where, where like she kind of forgets but but vaguely remembers him and they have to sort of start their relationship over and it i thought it was pretty touching towards the end i don't know yeah it was it was charming I it even it was, made I, i'm sorry go paul i was gonna say I, their their relationship kind of came out of nowhere for me i didn't think that it was gonna be romantic i i don't, I don't think i knew like their ages really but it turned out that their, their ages were a little closer i thought my my first picture of her was or image of her was like she was older like Haber's age or something so when that new reality was like formed and they were married I was like oh okay I guess cool but what, I didn't really think too much of it what I what I thought was that like um it yeah I thought it was touching and I thought it even kind of saved the the Beatles reference cringe uh you know which probably was like kind of like the weakest most like fucking what is this did john green write this part uh and it's like yeah i mean we we started venturing into the territory which can be profound or not depending on how you handle it of like we just we you know we need each other uh and i just took it to be like you know the kind of the first atomic particle that creates you know the larger life structures of just two people who care for each other and like will do these things for each other however i will say that one of the weaknesses if that's the message at the end is that this book is incredibly focused on essentially like a menage a trois like and 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 for all these large broad social ills and and what they're trying to do to save it and maybe that's intentional maybe not i'm not quite convinced either way but like the sense of a larger world was a little weak despite all the like kind of like descriptions of this geopolitical status of each iteration of reality that or creates and this kind of stuff like i appreciated those but there was like there was not enough other like auxiliary characters to make the world feel lived in in the way that would make the whole all we need is love a little help from our friends kind of fucking ending hit as hard as it could yeah i definitely agree and the beatles the the, the whole beatles thing was omega cringe i think <laughs> and but but you know i don't know if i do think the, the the story was intended to be more of that sort of like 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 low to the ground like intimate right. port like portrait of these three people in these weird relationships with each other with kind of like overtones of the larger world sort of the salt salt bayed on top 
like the the I, I I see what you mean, and that's kind of what I was thinking was happening is like you put create create an intimate scenario where like the personal is world historical and like that's the way to draw the line between the two and that's kind of what i was thinking lagoon was basically trying to do personal is political baby yeah i mean you know in this case in this case quite literally and and of course that would be something that would make sense for lagoon who was deeply involved in sort of feminist movements at the time and that sort of slogan i don't know the the provenance of it historically when it when it came about but that was something that was very much in the culture right i think um okay just i have just a couple other points that i wanted to make or ask you guys what you thought about i mean i think one thing that's interesting is the uh, the implication that this power in george was sort of brought on by like a traumatic nuclear event that he survived and then he had to like so there so he talks at one point about like the original past and he's like sitting on like the concrete block of like his new old like nuked house and like just crying as a younger you know person and it's sort of implied that that was like the original timeline of the future and that it was only after that that he started dreaming and changing reality. And so I think, I just thought, I don't know if you picked up on that. I see Matt's furrowing his brow, but Paul's nodding his head. But uh, so I think, it, I think it's interesting to think about that as a sort of commentary about like how we, how we cope with trauma and, and like often in doing so, like make it worse than it would be if we just kind of dealt with it head on by going back and trying to like, fix it or change it in various sort of ways in the way we deal like deal with our lives going forward yeah and i immediately thought of magneto uh the x-men character (laughs) (laughs) i'll allow it that's correct so for our if there are any x-men uh magneto podcasts out there (laughs) Magneto specific podcast please if there's any x heads out there um get up so so say more about say more about magneto and what's the connection well, if you've seen the original X-Men, I think it's the very first scene. He's in uh, his his family is being taken away, like through the gates of a concentration camp, and uh, he's he's separated from his mother. He's having a traumatic experience, and that's when his uh, his mag his magnet powers are first formed. And uh, I would even say that his life as a anti-X-Men, um, or is he an X-Men? I don't even know. He uh, he no. kind of tries to is he's not. No. Yeah. Uh, he, I would say he kind of does more harm than good in his life, like trying to correct the ways of mankind with his powers because he had qualms with the, the way things were, but he ends up like becoming a villain. And that doesn't really happen to Orr, but I was kind of, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about like the, I don't really know what the literal connection between, um, having a traumatic experience and getting uh dream time war powers are is but <laughs> um, basically basically or's dream time powers is just massive cope yes massive cope yeah yeah and what cope and what you see people when they voice their cope about something that they didn't like happening probably will happen if it was ever put into practice which is shit is worse because they're reacting essentially right my other thing is uh that i forgot to mention was that like 
there are all these indictments to Orr's imagination and tell the aliens, which are supposedly, presumably, a product of his mind and not things that existed before and are kind of the saving grace at the end of the book because they, for whatever reason, are like an ancient, you know, species of being that like has fully existed in the dream reality and and like are are in total control of it uh and i i think that's interesting if they are the complete product of george orr's imagination like meaning meaning he's like the indictment that i said at the beginning of him kind of like not just giving like dumb fucking baby solutions to problems where it's like racial issues everyone's gray like are kind of counterbalanced by this thing where he created an alien race that fucking has mastered the the dream the dream powers and and live in 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 the mist the to- mist of time or whatever they describe it as uh and sort of benevolently almost watch human beings kind of stumble through which is another classic sci-fi thing like aliens benevolently watching human beings fuck up and be pathetic i think that's yeah. a good point and and it, it, it of course ultimately it means that that his imagination was good enough the whole time right well yeah i think that idea is totally 10 out of 10 sci-fi points for sure because i think there <laughs> there is some uh like i i wasn't sure reading that if like he he did create the aliens, but there is some kind of gray area. Wink, wink, because the gray, or the people are gray. But there yeah. there is some like gray <laughs> area in terms of like were they actually around like before him? Did they exist because he has this power, or was it solely out of his imagination that they respond and they have? I mean, because his imagination works the way it does everything that he creates is real and has always been real. But I, I, I do like that notion of like, you don't know if they have been around. Right. Forever. Yeah. Good, good sci-fi. Sci- <laughs> sci-fi elements. I think this book would score highly. The only, yeah. the one other, the one other thing that I think bit this, uh, this book style was a movie called the sphere. Uh, oh yeah, definitely where then alien it basically aliens sink a cool sphere into the bottom of the ocean and it people go into it and then they're able to uh they have less control it's i mean it's not a one-to-one but you know uh their dreams come true and it's a power that's too great for humanity well yeah, that's a, a good lot of, call i forgot about that movie the, there are a few different movies that i was thinking of that kind of I, I would be interested to know if this is like the probably isn't but the first like uh sci-fi kind of simple story that is just like it gets exponentially bigger and bigger until there's just like reality is totally rewritten i was thinking of like akira a little bit i don't know if you guys were like obviously george Orr is not like uh, a similar character who has you know that guy i forget his name in, in akira tetsuo uh, is is tetsuo kaneda is the other guy Tetsu is pathetic yeah. though, which is you know kind of. Yeah, I was seeing the the pathetic uh, similarities were definitely there with those two characters. Right. But I also thought of this B movie on Netflix called uh, Time Trap, which is awesome. 
<laughs> if you just want to watch a, a B movie from 2019 about people that go into a cave where time is super slow and they eventually find the uh, the cup of Christ, then definitely watch that. <laughs> if that's your cup of Christ, then go oh. ahead and watch that. <laughs> Damn, I like good. B movies. I love broadcasting. Time travel. <laughs> Groundhog Day. <laughs> Freaky <Time> Friday. <laughs> I, okay, here's my here's, here's the, the last serious question I have for you guys, and I'm curious what your intuitions about this are. I think the most interesting moral question this book raises in one in some ways is is that moment that I read earlier about when Orr basically just leftovers like six billion people and just disappears them. Right. One of one sort of hot area in academic philosophy and moral philosophy is <laughs> questions about like like what so, what sorts of harms if any can be done to the non-existent so like there's all this stuff written i recommend david benatar's book to anyone listening mm -hmm. it's called better never to have been uh the subtitle is the harm of coming into existence and his argument is like you shouldn't have kids because you're doing harm to the kids uh it's it's much more in-depth than that and it's it's a really good book but i was just interested to think about like what have those people been done any harm? Because it's not actually that Orr just poofs them out of existence. They, they, he undoes them in a much deeper sense. Like they never existed to begin with. Uh, and I, yeah, and those I, things, are, and those things are not the same. So it's not, it's actually not like the leftovers where they just disappear and go to the fucking yeah. the upside down or whatever. It's spoiler alert. Um, but. It, it literally makes the world such that they were never there in the first place. So or gets really hung up. Like I just killed 6 billion people. This is like, like really deeply morally evil. Did he? And is it? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think I basically asked this question earlier, right. When I was talking about how I basically said that. And the only people that are alive that know he did it are the three people in the room, Heather, um, the doctor, Haber and or. So if, the whole entire galaxy and universe didn't have knowledge of this other timeline, um, but three people do. Three people know that six billion people died. Is that? But enough? they didn't die though. They never existed. Or not died. Yeah, but they existed in the in the in the minds of George, right? So does that mean they're dead because one person remembers this alternate timeline? That's I guess I think dead. That's the question. I guess for all intents and purposes, maybe dead, like uncreated is, is, you know, the, the same, right. Essentially. I mean, it's, it's, we don't know. I mean, the, the problem, I think the, the problem is that we don't know. First of all, the, I think the, the morality of the situation also comes from the fact that George doesn't want to be the one to do it. Like, like he, like that's an awesome capability and he does not want to do it he's miserable that he can do such a thing i think that's one aspect of that and then the the notion of never having been like i just i, I don't really know I, I like i don't know how to i don't know how to grapple with that fully i don't know I, me either i just think i thought it was really interesting because well, my, yeah. my intuition is that like it feels pretty clear to me that those people didn't die uh sure, right 
that something else happened to them. But I don't know how to morally evaluate whatever that thing is. Or I don't even know if anything happened to them at all because in the new reality, they never were in the first place. So how could something happen to them? Exactly. Well, yeah. they only they only now exist in like a fading memory in, in Orr's mind. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. It's so I that really... was that was that was that was the moment that really gave me those classic like, oh man, sci-fi is sick vibes. Yeah. Sci-fi. I mean, that like you said, that's you know, that's the critical moment in general. I think that's the like turning point of the whole book. It's kind of right in the middle. Like that's I think that's supposed to be fucking making you think about that kind of stuff and get uncomfortable and wonder how you feel about any of that. And I think the I key, got instantly- George is like, nah, nah, I don't, I, I personally can't deal with it. Like, I think that's the key. That is the, like, that feels like the moral key is like the weird notion of like power and like pseudo agency that he has over this, but also not. It, yeah. Yeah, the weird thing about that moment is I got like instantly turned on. I was like, "What?" <laughs> uh, yeah, six and any number for Paul, and it's it's over. <laughs> yeah. Paul's like, "Are you sure it wasn't six point nine billion people?" <laughs> six or sex? Sex million? Sex? <laughs> oh Did you say sex billion? I mean, there is such a thing as a sextillion, Paul. Did you ever think about that? No, never have. Well, there you go. Isn't, isn't that like a southern like uh, uh, ball? <laughs> well, joke. That's a joke. I know the difference. Listen, if we have any of those math, <laughs> math podcasts we're talking about, and they love the the number sextillion, or if we have any southern culture, what's a cotillion? <laughs> I, I see a cotillion. I always thought was like a a fabric. <clears throat> It's a dance, but isn't Fuck. it? It's a, it's like a debutante ball. It's like a southern thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. I want a debutante ball. I wish I have, had gotten one. If there are any debutante ball podcasts out there, still operating. De- de- the the debutante ballers, and they're just like, dude, it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> fucking love this shit, man. <laughs> the debutante ballers. <laughs> dude, my fucking coming out into society party. I fucking, I'm so excited. Any other uh, final thoughts, I guess, before we move into the... We're back, baby. We're back with the the, the number one rated fan favorite segment. Oh, yeah. You're a wizard, Harry. And, okay, and that that was the uh, prelude, and it's... We just did read another book, so shut up and let us put a, sort them into a house. Bitch. Bitch, and here you go. And this actually works because there's like basically three characters. Easy clap. Easy, easy. clap. And we're going to start with George, and I think that's also easy clap. I, I don't know if it is easy clap. No. It was easy for a long time for me. I thought he was straight Hufflepuff, e- yeah, and I kind of yeah. still... I thought he was leaning towards Hufflepuff, and I still think I'm going to put him there, but he's borderline Gryffindor. I'm going me. Gryffindor. I'm going to buck yeah. it and go Gryffindor. Gryffindor, really? baby. Buckbeak. Why? Just, Why? I mean, just really because of his sort of final act of, of just fucking literally throwing reality on his back and carrying it across the finish line. Yeah. And 
I think from go being kind of more immovable in his views than like the things happening kind of around him were go- were supposed to lead you to believe like he I think he actually like retained a sense of how the world should work in his mind and like stuck to his guns the whole time that's sort of where paul you were talking about him and heather's relationship and that's sort of what heather says she falls in love with him about is that he's so sort of steadfast and like unshakable everyone kind of does a double take maybe i think that it's a confusing one for me because from the lens perspective of just habers and or's relationship he becomes he comes across as very hufflepuff but you, you do have to read into those moments a little bit more. So yeah, I okay, I'm I'm siding with you. So fi- so it's final answer Gryffindor for George Orr. Okay. Gryffindor. <laughs> okay, uh let's talk about William Haber. And the palm to Gryffindor. You just have to I just have to say, you know. Okay, Haber. Haber. Slytherin. Slytherin. I'm going with Ra- a hard Ravenclaw. Hard Ravenclaw. Wow. I don't. Th- I don't know. He's dark. I think, he, I, I think he's dark Ravenclaw. You okay? Um, I don't see that. I still think I still hold a lot of. Uh, he's all about. And- he's all about rational inquiry, science, like getting the like you heat on and dolor calculus. Right. Yeah, but Ravenclaws are also like Luna Lovegood. That's like a big aspect of who they are. They're like hippie art people. I what about Luna, Luna Lovegood? What what was she in? She was a Ravenclaw. She was a Ravenclaw? Pretty sure. Dog. Yeah, you're right. She was a Ravenclaw. No, I'm going I'm going Slytherin. I, I think the form he takes at the end is kind of the key there. And uh raw ambition dressed up no matter how it is is like over a void he you know i i i think i think i think all the science shit was like a post hoc rationalization of a a a genuine megalomania ravenclaws because he ravenclaws can be ambitious well yeah i I agree yeah (laughs) i agree i just i just think that uh there's a little too much ambition like he 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 does change and becomes like more powerful in the new realities that or creates for him or you know and he's like he's craving this sort of like better reality for mankind while also trying to be like higher in society because with each level a bad ravenclaw is not just i don't i don't really think they're just like a mad scientist which is basically what i'm thinking of it's like I think they would still approach these things with more caution than Orr tends to. I, I was always kind of surprised by his Haber. Fuck Haber, sorry. I was surprised by his like willingness after things like six billion people being absolutely erased from existence or ever having been, of just still being like, we got a lot more work to do, George. Like, you know what but I mean? to me, that's a Ravenclaw. That's not like it. Like his reaction to that, I think is a good. I think it's, this is a good sticking point, Matt. Because okay, to, this, to me, the Slytherin reaction to that is like, yes, we we did it. But it, it's he's he's just like yeah, falling t- into a villain. No, that's no. That's you guys are falling into the villain thing. You You're guys are falling, falling into. into the, no, you, you are, are falling, too. No, 
dude, you are as well. We're both doing it, maybe. I think you guys are falling into the villain Slytherin. Like, his reaction is, it's like workmanlike. It's like, we had to make a tough choice. Uh, decisions have to be made. And um, in pursuit of uh, getting this, you know, machine operational and learning the insights about brains and sleep. I, I don't think the, I think... I think it's backwards. I think that you you're painting it and and I think it can tilt either way. I think this is open to interpretation, but I think that the I think that you guys are feeling like the science stuff was incidental to the like power and ambition stuff and I just think it's the other way around. Well, I, I kind I'm of going to just disagree I, with you. I mean, I do I do see your point that there might be more of just like a science man to it, but I just don't see that as a Ravenclaw still. I think we have, we still have to like I think we have to decide on like a final status of what a ravenclaw is because i still just see too much like art hippie in that house that i can't really look away from i could which be is evidence which is evidential with a lot of the characters that are ravenclaws in the book because because of because of the way that i imagine ursula Le Guin as a writer would potentially be trying to create shades of gray here that maybe Gabe's more correct. But I still feel like Haber ended up being a black hole. Yeah, and I, and I and I I just that that's what that's like that til tilts the scales to me. So here's okay, here's where I think you're slipping, and then I'll I'll leave it at this. The here's, snake scales. Here's where I think you're falling into the Slytherin is the villain thing, is because you're taking Haber's becoming a black hole as being some sort of like referendum on his soul and who he is as a person. I think the black hole is more about his worldview than who he is as a person, which I think are distinct things. I yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. But as a, as a person though, he's still kind of like shitty and I don't ambitious. think I, I mean he he has some bad qualities, but or has bad qualities. Lalesh has bad qualities. Uh, he is ambitious, yeah, and he's maybe does some medically questionable things, um, but I don't think he's like like a villain in the way that you you're you're suggesting. Well, no, and I and this is I think this is tantamount to the notion that you know Slytherins are not de facto villains. I don't think he's a villain, but I think he's Slytherin. Okay, so I think I think his ambition poisons his better judgment in every instance and i think that is slytherin just overpowering what would be a normal kind of scientific rational ravenclaw inquiry of the world i don't think he's poisoned by his ambition i think he's poisoned by a sort of dogged pursuit of of you know certain types of uh answers about the way the world works and a blindness to uh you know considerations outside of that i mean or i will just say he wants the you power can go, you can go look in the book or all the other characters say on many different occasions that they do not question his motives really at all ever. And I think that that's, uh, I agree. They, we just don't truly like only, they don't see his, the full picture like we do though. Or does. No one sees the full picture. I think that's the other thing. Or doesn't see a full picture or, or sees more than other, anyone else. I think, just but he had from the beginning and it just bore out to be true okay 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 wait i changed my mind i changed my mind you guys are right he's a slytherin here's what changed my mind in that <laughs> passage that i in the passage that i read 
he is he is with within the space of like roughly 10 seconds instantly ready to kill heather when he thinks that she might sabotage his plans right okay, okay. great so slytherins are uncomplicated villains he's a slytherin <laughs> that's not true based <laughs> based on the robust and healthy debate in the in the battlefield of ideas that we just had <laughs> no i'm changing my mind again I'm, no, no i'm sticking with he's a dark ravenclaw <laughs> okay all right all right that's fine all right I'm so saying, we got so we got and i'm saying one he's, he's a morally ambiguous slytherin in my in my opinion so we got one right. rave two slith all right he's a hufflepuff uh what about heather heather i think is the trickiest one i think she's a hufflepuff yeah yeah i agree i think she wants to be a slytherin but i think she's because she you know she it, the descriptions of her were really interesting uh and kind of weird as like a spider person almost <laughs> to, yeah. to the point that I, to the point that i wasn't exactly sure if she was human for a few at a few moments also um, some some you know despite everything some phrenological overemphasis on her well-shaped head yeah there was some weirdness <laughs> there was definitely some weirdness um but is she loyal af she, she you know she, secretly yeah she ride or die for or right uh, in when she did not need to on multiple occasions including going to his weird log cabin you know yeah in reality number four whatever they were at so reality bites ben stiller right winona Ryder. great movie great movie reality bites and if you if reality bites then have a dream and fix it right you want to do uh scores yeah let's do some scores I actually hadn't um, thought. Fuck, I hadn't really thought about the score. Do did we decide that whoever picked it has to go first or what? I thought it was last. Oh, okay, last. Okay, so Paul, what do you last. think? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, my initial read through, I I think I was going to give it like a two point eight. Um, but after the discussion, boosted it up to a three point three. Nice man. I love when that happens. I was going to say a uh, 3.5. I I think it's better than that. I think Le Guin's writing is fantastic and I think some of the political and moral stuff got me. It's like a it's like a 4.17 for me. Okay. I'll change it to a 3.57. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Got to sneak one in there. It's it's definitely like I, I this again, you know, I, I feel like this is still like my like I liked it a lot score at this point still. And like I, I just think like the brevity of it um made it so that there were a lot of like notions thrown out there and some fleshed out, but largely it was this kind of story that just is great if like you want a high high density high density amount of like things to chew on thrown at you that are like really interesting and worthwhile to think about, but not really like explored fully. I don't, I I disagree with that. I think I feel like it explored its central couple of themes pretty well about like, I mean, obviously we're sitting here talking about it for fucking, you know, two hours and we, we can, we can spiral, we can spiral a tiny detail into a lot of different directions, but I feel like it said what it wanted to say pretty economically. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know what? Yeah, I'm Paul and Gabe. I'm still st- what? <laughs> what? It just became 
A 3.6. <laughs> I think I, I do I do think my score is is probably too low, but I, I just can't get over that like a lot of the more uh, political themes and philosophical themes just weren't on my mind when I was reading it. And I can't really let that go. Yeah. You, so just 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 as like uh like the first read through, I thought it was like a a strong 10 out of 10 sci-fi novel mm. but that I, I was kind of just like i don't know it, it was kind of cut and dry to me on the on the initial read through but after the discussion i do have to bump it up so what, what was my score again i'll do i'll do 3.8 or 3. Whoa. uh 3. 3.38 3.38 <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. 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 All right. That would <laughs> be a like, big ass jump. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I can't. Good I can't. Lord. Let, I can't let go of my guns that hard. Yeah. 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 Don't relinquish your guns. Yeah. yeah. Second Amendment, baby. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, uh, this has been great, guys. Love it. So good. And we love what's happening. And we love what's happening. Your spine has been cracked, and we love what's happening. Right. Your T1, 2, 3, and 4 have been loosened in a nice way. Facts. Yeah, you need to go to the chiropractor again, though, because you're, I mean, it was cracked a little too hard. It's not always going to be a nice cracking, but occasionally it is, and I feel like this one was. Uh, So, Happy New Year, everybody, coming up, and uh, or after, when this comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone go get some, uh, some, some deep REM sleep and don't awaken a volcano in your dreams. Yeah. 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 Okay. Bye. Bye. I love you. I love bye. you. Bye. bye.